Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. And to do that, you can't be, you just can't go around and be like, you're racist, you're homophobic, you're a transphobe, you don't know what, you don't know what you're talking about, shut up and go away, you're canceled. No, that means there's, you got to go to the working class people where they're at and find what they're concerned about and serve the people. The Europeans really didn't just show up and roll everybody, okay? Their dominance of the world took centuries to actually complete. And most people simply didn't just sit there and say, okay, we're going to get conquered and call it a day. And in fact, sometimes they would get conquered and they would rise up to push out the conquerors for at least a short period of time. And the theme, if you will, here is resistance, is that we need to understand that there were a variety of different groups and individuals that were able to lead resistances against these expanding empires from Europe. Okay. And so today I'm going to specifically get into the Pueblo Revolts, which was uh, a form of Native American resistance in North America. And so just a brief description, this is going to be something also known as Pope's or Pope's Rebellion. Uh, this is when most of the indigenous Pueblo people, who I'll explain who they are more in a moment, rise up against the Spanish in present-day New Mexico, or as that at that time was known as Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico. Now, the Pueblo are a large group of people, okay? And I'm going to be talking about different tribal groups and, and who made up the Pueblo, but it's important to understand that the Pueblo aren't any one single tribe. It's going to be multiple groups of tribes of people that came together to try to resist specifically the Spanish. And let's just get some basic background. So as the Spanish were moving into this area, there were a series of violent conflict. Um, probably the biggest one was the, the Tigo War, uh, in which Francisco Coronado, who was the famous conqueror of this area, was just absolutely brutal to the Tiwa people, who are one of the Pueblo groups of people. This was a brutal war that was fought. Coronado was able to come out on top, and the Spanish were able to, to conquer the area. Now, later on, there was a earlier revolt, which was known as the Acoma Pueblo Revolt. Um, but this was absolutely uh, brutal. Uh, Juan de Onate uh, was called in by the Spanish to conquer the or to reconquer the area. And he will kill and enslave hundreds of people, as well as all men who took part in the revolution who were over the age of 25 were um, required to have one of their feet chopped off. So this area is one of resistance and one of brutal violence, in particular by the Spanish. All right. And this is something that we need to understand was already established in this area. I have here what was orders versus what was happened. So the Spanish royal policy, so these are the orders of the Spanish crown, was that natives were to be treated humanely, specifically on the frontier, and specifically they really want them to be Christianized. That's the goal. All right. The reality wasn't really that at all. Uh, the Pueblo people were forced to provide tribute um, to the Spanish, typically in the form of labor, crops like corn or even textiles. And 
and they also were restricted to their natural resources. Most notably, the Spanish heavily restricted their access to water in these in the area. Now, this area, of course, known as for being relatively dry, and this was a way for the Spanish to try to control them, but also a way to kind of breed resentment because the key thing we need is water, of course, for life and crops and stuff like that. And then the Spanish were really reducing the access that people had to it. And so you have this combination here of, you know, the Spanish crown said what they were supposed to do and the locals just really didn't do it at all. Part of this also is going to be a religious conflict as well, okay? The Pueblo people in general are very, very religious. Um, they did not take kindly to an encroachment, um, particularly with the Franciscan monks that were sent in here. Uh, the Franciscans were basically put in charge of settlements and a variety of different villages that they tended to rule in a um, kind of like a theocratic type of government here and it was very very strict and it wasn't going well and so initially actually what the monks will start to do is create a compromise so if some of the pueblo would allow themselves to be baptized and attended mass they were generally left alone at home and so some of the traditional things that they were able to do um, certain dances, certain religious rites, which I'll mention more in a moment, um, they, they were just left alone. It was totally cool. It's like, all right, well, we'll, we'll hang out in your church for a while, but you'll leave us alone. But eventually, they, they being the Spanish, decide that that isn't going to be the way things are done. And as time went on, they saw things um, become banned. Most notably, uh, there were the Kachina dances, which is an ancestral dance that was banned, and a number of their ceremonies were banned as well. Many of these ceremonies called for the use of uh, certain psychoactive drugs in them. The Spanish decided they didn't like that and thus started to ban certain practices. And so you have, you know, they're being restricted on resources. They're not allowed to use um, or, or to, to participate in these very important ceremonies and we just see these things um building and building finally we get to two main things that really just break it all down first and foremost there's a drought and famine um already you have restrictions of water use and other types of resources and now you have people that are dying as a result and again we see this all throughout history a lot of revolutions often begin after some other type of period of stress and droughts and famines are very common periods of stress that get people to a breaking point because they're oppressed and they're dying and so they're you know what if we don't make a change we're gonna die anyway so why not the other issue is that uh, at one point 47 medicine men were arrested for practicing sorcery four were executed and the rest were beaten and jailed uh, this is actually going to be the first mounted resistance that they will then do they being the Pueblo um, they actually march to the governor's office and demand the release of the prisoners um, they will end up getting most of them released and one that gets released is a man who goes by the name of Pope was probably the most important guy there. Now, we don't know much about him. We know he is going to be the key orchestrator of the revolt. We do know that some other men were involved, but we know that he was kind of the guy at the top. 
And so the first thing that he is going to look to do is look to get a confederation of these Pueblo people that are willing to fight the Spanish. And the, the groups that he get, and again, I go here, so you have the northern Tiwa, the Tewa, the Tiwo, the Taino, the Keras, the Pecos, the Zuni, and the Hopi. Now, he doesn't get every single one of those people, but these are the major tribes that are willing to come together to actually fight the Spanish. And so the basic goal was to rise up in the area of modern-day New Mexico and kill or expel the Spanish and then move in force to Santa Fe. Santa Fe is the only sizable town in the region and basically controls everything. So the goal is... You're going to rise up in these areas. This is a coordinated attack, so a bunch of different attacks all at the same time. We're going to rise up, and then, boom, we'll eventually move on Santa Fe. Now, it was supposed to occur on August 11th, 1680, but some of the runners who were taking messages back and forth between the groups were captured and tortured to to reveal some of the plans. So Pope decided to start a day early, and on August 10th, 1680... Boom, the revolt happens. And early on, they have incredible amounts of success. The Spanish are driven out of every single village in New Mexico. Santa Fe was under siege. And after just three days um, of siege, and the official date of that would be August 21st, 1680, the governor, Antoni D. Alterman, makes a push to get out of the city. And he does, and then actually flees New Mexico. And they win. It's absolutely incredible. And here we have a a, a revolt that is successful that a lot of times, you know, that doesn't happen. Now, Pope's goal was to really unite this area into one giant confederation and almost the concept of a country. Um, He's kind of the leader of this for about a year, but not much is known that happens after him. All we know is that he wanted kind of this country to be formed, and the goal was to drive all Europeans out of the region and keep them out. Um... All the way down to the point where we don't want to use any European crops, uh, obviously no Christianity. Uh, Unfortunately, though, he is not able to do this. And then in 1692, Pope dies, which is a big deal because when he dies, you you don't quite have the leadership there that you had during the rebellion. Now, eventually, the Spanish are going to return. Slowly but surely, they will re-advance. They are led by, and that will start in late 1692, after Pope is dead. Um, They will be led by by a man by the name of Diego de Vargas. And initially, the whole idea is they're going to move it in force and get the Pueblo to try to just accept Spanish rule. So have a little bit of give and take there. Um, But by 1693, that's not working well. So he goes in with more military means. um, And it's really brutal. He'll kill any men who resist as well as enslave their families. And unfortunately, the organization that they had during the rebellion, they just don't have here. And by 1700, the area will be completely regained and the Spanish will continue to grow. And as you can see here, you know, they start in this area. This was, you know, going there and just pushing and pushing up 
and pushing up. So reconquering this out to California over here, you know, in modern day Texas and it's all done. However, the legacy here is important to understand that this is, again, this isn't something that the Spanish just show up and it's all over. There was routine resistance. And understand that, you know, within about 120 years of this point, you're going to start to see the process of the Spanish actually losing these areas. Um, the locals will rise up. You will see the Latin American freedom movements. Um, you know, you have one in Mexico, you have Simón Bolivar and other groups in South America. Um, and, and this was one of the really the big ones. So it's important to understand that there was constant resistance to these groups. It wasn't as easy as one often makes it. And the Pueblo were a great example of that. Afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Uh, tonight or this day, we have uh, Dust James with us. Uh, Dust James from from the Working Class Revol Revolt. Uh, good evening, Dust. Hello. Good evening. Yeah. Good to speak to you. Um, yes. So, Dust, you are um, in North Carolina, in in the rural areas there. Uh, you're an American, of course. Uh, you're in Republican territory, but you're maybe not quite as uh, conventional to the people in that area. Um, you're, I guess, a socialist, maybe a communist. Um, you've got your, your uh, show. Um, yeah, you've, you're, you've got an interesting background there. And on your show, Working Class Revolt, you guys talk about anti-imperialism, uh, anti-capitalism, socialism, communism. Uh, I just want to know, how did, you, how did you come to having those views, it, particularly because of where you are? not exactly a communist stronghold. So how did you come to have the perspective that you do? Well, first of all, there's, there's, some, there's some stuff you're leading to in the question that I might have disagreements with. Okay. And that's the idea that somehow liberals and Democrats are closer to socialism or communism than Republicans. And I completely disagree with that. Hmm. Um, the, the Democrats and the liberals... Um, they, they kind of posture they're like they're on the left, but they are the left wing of the most brutal, disgusting, imperialist political force on earth that does not represent the working class, no matter how, um, they try to come off and say they do or act like they do. Mm. And I think that that is, that assumption is just wrong. I won't even, mm. I, I won't say either Republicans or Democrats are closer to um socialism or communism not even they sheepdogs not even bernie sanders who is just trying to he says he's trying to get health care um he says he's fighting for it when it comes time to fight for it he steps down and tells you to vote imperialist racist like like joe biden 
So mm. that's that's the first thing I want to say about that question. Mm. Okay. Mm. The next thing about that is and now when you're talking about how I came to these positions, um, that is a long story. <laughs> that is that is a very long story. <laughs> okay. Um I can get into it briefly. I've done it on my show quite a bit before. Um Let's see. When I was 14, I was very much opposed to the Iraq war. Uh, my family has a little bit of uh, religious backgrounds with peace, maybe some of the Quaker influences, um, ideas about, you know, Brotherhood of Man, the Quakers um, were some of the gr groups that religious groups that ran the Underground Railroad. And they you have the American Friends Service Committee, which I did a... Um, internship with right out of high school which and one was I, sorry, which which organization this was a long time back <laughs> uh, this was when i was 18 i worked my right this summer i graduated high school i did an internship with the american friends service committee which is a liberal peace group in the united states with religious groups from the quaker tradition and i think my my dad had some of those influence he wasn't really practicing a religious but he wouldn't let us watch more movies, kids. And he gave us a little bit of an anti-war start. Hmm. Um, but, you know, in his older age, he's reactionary now. But that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother <laughs> issue. But he got, okay. he got me started, started in thinking about, you know, a little bit of critical thinking. And as hmm. far as my own journey, I think the biggest book to radicalize me was um, Henry Davis Thoreau's Civil Disobedience. The idea that the the law, the morality, and love for your neighbors and justice isn't always the same as what the law is or what the political state is. Mm -hmm. And I had, and I was very religious at the time. I was very uh, Christian. I think I started with Christian anarchism, and I was mostly anti-war. And I had a deep love and feeling for all of humanity. And I, and when someone was being bombed or attacked. That was me being a bombed, bombed or, or attacked, mm. um, kind of religious, spiritual um, presence to begin with. And I think for a lot of people in rural areas, and especially in the South, um, religion is um, where a lot of you know feelings of like sacred feelings, love for humanity, uh, these ideas come into play. A lot mm -hmm. of people, if you look in the civil rights movement, um, the churches where a lot of a lot of um, social justice and other things happened. Um, in this state, we got uh, Reverend William Barber. I think he's tied too in with the with the Democrats, if you ask me. But I think he's very one of the most positive progressive figures um, mm -hmm. in the state. Um, and then from that, when I got into college, I got more involved in the anti-war movement. You know who's leading the anti-war movement? Communists everywhere mm. <laughs> and, and um <laughs> that's who does it and they do it because they're the only ones that material represent um international solidarity is communism like that's the only real framework i mean a mm. lot of people come to it but that's the most exact thorough framework so i met communists in the anti-war movement and i was i was trained in marxist leninism um, from an older, an, some older folks, an older legacy group, small legacy group. Uh, they're underground. I can't say the name of them. Um, just, I'm no just longer. A quick one there. Sorry, James. I should jump in. Um, 
Obviously, you you were uh, obviously as you said a, a Quaker background, anti-war background, a bit of a religious background. When you met these communists at the anti-war meeting, I mean, as an American, uh, as far as I'm as I can understand, usually raised to be scared or uh, yes. of communists. And the idea of even seeing a communist—I mean, I remember the first time I saw a communist. I was <laughs> surprised. I was blown away in the UK seeing a communist. I was like, "Oh my God, look, a hammer and sickle." So, what what, what went through your mind when you first saw <laughs> well, a real communist? Okay, so um, I think they used the, they used a pretty good strategy. A lot of communist groups were forced to go underground in the United States, especially some of the older groups. If you're going back to the McCarthy era, the McCarthy era is something unique to the United States which is outright brutal suppression of the communist movement to the point it almost became a non-factor. And majority of Western countries, you still have maybe a small communist party that's public or open or has some affiliation with the unions. Mm. In the United States, you're not even allowed to lead unions still legal on the books if you're uh, affiliated with a communist party. You are, it is illegal for you to be a union labor or hold um, union office. Um, I don't know. I I think if someone did try that, they there'd be a good constitutional case against that. But no one's no one's hold a case on it. Mm. And my and a lot of it is the idea that communism's the government and communism's supposed to control you. And and I was kind of like a persistent free thinker, like no one's going to control me. Get out of here with that. But then, like I saw that communists are some of the most wonderful people you ever meet. Um, they not only fight to provide for their family and work hard with their job, they're, they get involved in the union movement and they fight for the rights of others. Um, and they take not only energy to survive, they take addition to that, even when they ain't got much, and dedicate it for the benefit of humanity. Mm. And that, I think there's a lot of um, overlap between... Um, where I came from, my spiritual, religious, humanitarian views with communism. I see. I see. Okay, that's 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 great. That's, I, I think um, perhaps a lot of people have a similar journey to you, uh, coming arriving at a sort of communist perspective. Um, you said something very interesting at the beginning there, which uh, yes, I mean I've, I agree with you. Actually, uh, the whole point of the Democrats being the implied left. Uh, or, or sort of closer to the working class interests than than the Republicans, um, and yeah, I think I think I agree with you taking issue with that, of course. Um, so when you um, with some with someone with your views, when you speak to people, uh, Republican minded uh, individuals in North Carolina about communism, about anti imperialism, do you find it? You say then it's very easy. To speak to them about these things, that this they can they can reach the same conclusions as you quite easily. Um, it's an uphill battle. We got years and years of Stockholm syndrome, um, imperialist propaganda, individualist propaganda, and we're all we are all products of our society. Mm. Um, but you know things are changing. Um, the imperialist block is falling. Um, conditions are worsening. Um, I grew up dirt poor. There was eight of us down a mile-long dirt road in a two-bedroom trailer um, at one point. And I grew up a lot poorer than a lot of the people I uh, I went to school with. 
And I ended up, you know, I went to college, I dropped out of college, started driving trucks. I got a trade. I've been over the road. I'm doing local now. And I noticed even with a trade, I'm doing maybe a smidge better off than a lot of the people who are better off than me um, growing up. So, I mean, the conditions are getting worse. If you look at what just happened in Texas, Texas is supposed to be mm. a Republican stronghold. I'm interviewing somebody tomorrow, a worker, also a socialist from a rural area. Um, and basically, it's obvious they're letting the infrastructure crumble. Um, the, the, the labor aristocracy in this country, which maintain, helped maintain the empire, is no longer needed. It's shrinking. Um, we got people my age, 20, 20, 25, 30, are not being able to find jobs like they used to. Industrial jobs have globalized, uh, moved overseas. Um, people are mm. forced to being live with their families. Mm. Um, uh, worsening healthcare, worsening school system. I mean, it's obvious they're, they're letting things fall apart around here. So if you focus on those issues, the material issues, and you point out who's Robin who, and uh, there actually is an anti-elitist um, kind of sentiment within the rural population that's positive. Now, the Republicans have twisted that and say, oh, it's just the Democrats are that. But mm. in, re in reality, Republicans fall right in behind that. And it's not, it's not hard to move that over and be like, talk some shit about Hillary Clinton because a lot of Republicans are trained to hate Hillary Clinton for some right reasons for NAFTA, um, for hating the rich, which we should because they've been fucking us. Can I, can I cuss on this? Of course. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so you, you, you can easily pivot that, you know, Trump elite, uh, elitist, New York, uh, businessman, uh, he's kind of, he's nasty. I'm glad he's out of the picture to be honest with you. Because the liberals were able to make it all about Trump, and which made the system not to be the problem. Trump was the problem. When in reality, it's the whole damn capitalist system that's guilty, that keeps working folks down, and keeps folks of oppressed nations, African-American brothers and sisters, Chicano brothers and sisters as well. Mm, 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 absolutely. So, you talk about the material conditions, and that's the way that you can approach um, workers, particularly people that would be more Republican-minded and not necessarily natural-born communists. Or there is a, such a thing. Um, but yeah, okay. And then that's that's how. Let me. I just want further on that. I mean, that's how that's how history works. This is the Marxist perspective. Hmm. Um, this is a. Um, let me get this. I got this little this little speech prepared that I always talk about. So mm -hmm. you got a thesis. You got an antithesis and you got a synthesis. All right. Capitalism is the, you know, is the thesis and then it has contradictions within it. Things where it, things aren't working out so right. Like the oppression of the, I think one of the main contradictions is the oppression uh, is oppressed nations. And you also have the class um, contradiction. And these things aren't working out. And those things push, they push history in a new direction. They come into a struggle with each other and you get a new thin synthesis, which will be social. So, all, so what I'm saying is this is the process. People are being, becoming disillusioned with the system. You got Republican folks freezing over there in Texas while they're building a wall on the border to keep the Mexican folks out. 
and they haven't invested in a 40, 50 year old electrical grid. Mm. I mean, it's glaringly obvious. And I'm part of a growing trend. I mean, I was a I was kind of at the forefront or the beginning of it. But if you just look at that sheepdog Bernie Sanders, I think he hopped in front of it. He hopped in front of it to try to direct us back into the system. But mm. socialism was on its way back. And it is on its way back. And I meet a new young person every day who I met a 17 year old um, man out of out of Southern Illinois who's an who's a dedicated Marxist Leninist and a farm boy mm. and also about to be a trucker. And it's and I'm, I'm part of on Facebook. You got uh, leftist trucker collective like it is a growing social movement. You mm. won't hear it. You won't hear this on the media, but it's happening. And it's history and the material conditions that are leading it us to this fact. Mm. And and <laughs> if you believe this this narrative of I call it like kind of like cultural leftism, mm-hmm. um, where you got to be this or that or say to say this or that. If you don't, you get kicked out or what have you. That's not how it works. It's going to mm. take average working people with flaws, and communists need to work and need to lift up people. It is our job to understand where people at. Uh, understand their language and use that and be the bigger person, not trying to get in these petty fights and bullshit and build our egos, but to get out and talk to people and lift the people up to a higher stage of thinking so we can bring about a higher type of society. Mm, 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 beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, I mean, this is uh, what you just said does tie into the sort of, um, I, I guess you would say, the sort of uh, middle, lack of a better term, the sort of middle class, uh, almost liberal minded uh, communist, quote unquote, that are quite happy to, um, mm, as you say, uh, point out the flaws and to, to sort of berate and like uh, condemn sort of um, new people to this movement, your truck driver, your average working class person. And they're First thing to do is to jump on the floors. Oh, you need to read more theory, or that's reactionary, or you're you're racist. So, um, I guess that's that's your opinion on this: is that the average working person, the average person that is going to be coming into this kind of movement, is going to have flaws, is going to have um, ideas from from the old society, from where we are right now, and that you you lift them up. Right on, man. Exactly. Mm. Okay. Okay. That's that's great. Um, <clears throat> so. I guess we've touched on uh, Trumpism and, and, and Trump and the Republican Party, but uh, I think you said it as well that people are <clears throat> seeing the material conditions, jobs going away, deindustrialization, and then also, like you just mentioned now, with specifically Texas crumbling infrastructure, that the, the whole thing is decaying and falling apart. Do you think that <clears throat> January 6th uh, is also a, a sort of sign of that, that people are angry, people are upset, people don't know where to turn and they've kind of ended up mm. with with Trump is that is that what you think about that, that I I think there's there's a little bit of a difference between the average Trump voter and the folks that sh- that had the money to show up at the capitol um I think I'd have to describe the phenomenon of Trump to begin with Trump is a break from the neoliberal uh, traditional republican mindset before it was America's the best. It's very jingoist. 
Um, before Trump, it was this neoconservative, jingoist, America, love it or leave it. America's the best country in the world. There's no problems here. Anybody that says any otherwise is, you know, is, is a, is a um, American hating commie. You know, that's kind of was before Trump said, make America great again. So wait a second. So America is not currently great. So that's a break with early Republican vision. Mm. Um, so, but what was he offering the alternative? His idea again means he wanted to go back to Jim Crow 1950s when the U.S. empire was at its zenith and they had a little bit more of a labor aristocracy. He wanted to bring back, he wanted to make the American, the white uh, labor aristocracy great again. Mm-hmm. And, and, base, and there was a lot of feelings of xenophobia and racism, but it was a break from that. And he did have some populist element. Um, he went, you know, he went along with like, you know, uh, Hillary is, is elitist. He played into that. Some, he even was against some of these trade deals like NAFTA. And it, he didn't go near far enough, but he worked with the populist president, um, AMLO, um, to bring about a, a, slight, a slight restructuring of NAFTA. And whenever the, the Democrats attacked him, it, a lot of it was often from the right. They were mad that he was, te- he was trying to take troops out of Afghanistan. Um, and, and, and in all reality, he actually wasn't trying to take troops out of Afghanistan. They've just been privatizing them. Um, that's a little bit of a, a caveat to that. I don't want to get on here like Trump is some kind of anti-imperialist. No, he's mm. an opportunist. He's an opportunist. Um, he's about himself. Um, he's a dem. He's a basically a populist demagogue um, who is a, a marketing. He's a marketing genius, <laughs> and he used it. I think he was mm-hmm. used as well. Mm. His control is controlled opposition. Um, to get people distracted in this, this mindless drama, instead of actually focusing, making it all a personality issue, mm. instead of actually fo- focusing on the material conditioning conditions and demanding policies like single payer education, student loan relief, infrastructure building, um, to, to distract us from those, those policies, which are, um, which the majority support in this country. Um, a majority support um, student loan forgiveness. A majority support single payer health care. You wouldn't yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> looking yeah, at yeah. the media. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but as far as the six, I was going into. Um, so the people there's there's two Trump voters. Actually, there's there's several. You know, you got the really elitist. They're like, oh, Trump's horrible, but he's getting he's building power for my specific special interests. And then you had the people that were at the Capitol. I call them the small business tyrant. And basically, people with means, people to own boats, people that got businesses, they treat their their poor black and brown workers like shit. Um, but they actually lost a lot of uh, um, economic stability with the COVID. And I mean, COVID was a disgusting, horrible virus. I believe we should have done what China did, shut down the state, give everybody food. You know, but what happened was, I believe the big capitalists, the, you know, the Rockefellers, the Amazon, the Bezos, what have you, they used it to crush the small business capitalists, even the medium small business capitals, and move wealth upward. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the bailouts that were supposed to help um, small businesses and medium businesses went straight up to the big dogs. So mm-hmm. a lot of these folks out of the capital were mad that they're being pushed out of their position in the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. But they don't want it. They don't want to unite with the working class or the oppressed nations. I call it oppressed nations. I'm from a Marxist Leninist pers- perspective. Um, they don't want to unite with people worse off with them and fight the big man. They want to fight for their position back into capitalism and they follow a demagogue off a cliff to do so. Mm, 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 mm. So where, where do you think Trumpism or Trumpism, the populist sort of movement behind him is going to go now? I mean, people are talking about a, a civil war within the Republican party. Um, so within the frame of, of course, you know, the Republican party isn't a, it's the Republican Party, so it's not exactly the most. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a revolutionary force in in, in our sense. But um, where do you think that's going to go? That anger, that support. Do you think that the the, the Republican Party is doomed to just stay behind him until until he dies or something happens to him? Um, a lot. I mean, a lot of people within the Republican Party came out against him for because most likely they were hooked to different interests of capital um, that didn't go along. With, with Trump, I think Trump does represent, or at least tries to represent, you know, that smaller uh, manufacturing portion of the capitalist class. Mm-hmm. And I think the Democrats are almost wholeheartedly sold out and bought by the absolute elite um, capital. But at the end of the day, he's an opportunist and the banks are firmly in control. Like he kowtowed every, he said he was going to do this and that. He kowtowed to the banks to gain the favor. He kowtowed to the warmongers. So it's, it's not exactly, it's not exactly cut and dry. We're, we're, um, I think the whole, I, the whole structure of the Democrat Republican political show, it's, it's not a representation of real power. It is a way to keep the masses divided amongst each other. Um, Republicans um, pander to rural rural America, and Democrats pander to urban America. Mm. It is little more to convince urban and rural America to beat each other's throats. It's mm. Trump voters that the reason why this country is fucked up. It's Democrat voters. Um, it's black voters. It's Chicano voters. Um, these are the people. That's your problem. So as long as they convince us to have these cultural wars and be against each other, they can continue to run all the way to bank with the money. Mm-hmm. And now that capitalism is in crisis, before they didn't want people in politics. They want people to stay out of politics. But mm-hmm. now you got Democrats trying to rile up their forces and push them to support them. And you got Trump um, and the Republican forces trying to support their faction. They're mo- it's almost like we're being used as foot mm-hmm. soldiers in the in the battle amongst the various sections of the capitalists do you think that um you know that small business uh, tyrant sort of class that you mentioned as well as the other elements of trump supporters so some being working class and, and some being um from elsewhere i mean of course there is a working class element to trump's support base it's, it's undeniable um do you think that the general trump mm, support is riled up and angry enough and on the opposing side the the the, the urban classes that have been um, captured by the democratic movement or party do you think these two camps are at such a polarized sort of uh, 
position right now that they would actually mm, go to war with each other or antagonize each other further? Or do you think that really this is just a, a temporary sort of friction between the different factions and really we'll just return back to the electoral cycle, four years, four years, uh, two-term president, two-term president, the back and forth. Do you think that there is there's a, a sort of breaking point of the two-party system right now? Or do you think that um, things will go back to the stability of the, of, the, of the show, as you call it? As the conditions worse, um, the crisis, there's no end to the crisis um, without a complete restructuring of the current system. Um, until the government has enough control from the corporations to invest in needed infrastructure and public services, um, it's going to continue to get worse. Okay. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take uh, people's organized movement and a threat um, to get them to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last, a lot of people like to talk about the 60s, and the early late 60s, the early 70s, and the Black Panthers. Mm. And as like a revolutionary point, and I think that's true. I think that's true, especially the Black Panther um, with the original Rainbow Coalition, who, who in Chicago actually got Southern refugees um, united with the Black Panthers. I think that's a very good front. But I think an even more powerful front and an even more mass struggle was the, was the communist movements of the 1930s and 40s in the Great Depression. And basically, Roosevelt um, was scared of a revolution. I think there was an even bigger revolutionary situation back then. And that's what it took to implement Social Security, to implement um, unemployment, you know, unemployment insurance, to build the infrastructure that did, to, to bring about the labor laws that we have to this day, um, was because of power built by the Communist Party and others um, in that time period. They say Roosevelt saved capitalism, and he did it by giving some concessions um, mm. to, the, to the working class. Um, so I think, I mean, things are going to get worse, and it's up to us to organize on a grassroots level and to build power. I mean, I shared a friend, uh, I shared a quote from Huey Newton earlier that talked about the role of the party is to lead um, through both um, words and practice for a prolonged um, struggle of resistance, a prolonged resistance. Mm -hmm. So of, for, and by the people um, on a long-term basis. Meaning, it's not one campaign. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not a political candidate. It's not a party. It's not a piece of legislation. It is the people educating the people and building power for and amongst the people. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, you touched on uh, Hugh P. Newton there, the Black Panthers, and and, and there's a, a question I like to finish on later. Uh, I'll come back to that, but. I would like to ask you about your thoughts on, uh, you've mentioned a, a communist movement in the 1930s. And obviously now we're, we're sitting in 2021. 20, uh, what's your thoughts on the, the current communist movement, the CPUSA, the PSL, um, yeah, or any other party? I mean, I'm not excluding anyone. I just, just those two as a, as a guide. Um, what, what are the prospects for communist or socialist development um, right now? 
I think a problem with CPUSA is their continued support for the Democrats. Um, or the whole Democrats are better than Republicans. So we should vote for the lesser of two evils. I think they got caught up with that. Um, not to say that I know I know members of the of uh, the party of of uh, the Communist Party USA, and some of them are doing good work. Some of them are, do, um, are doing mutual aid and talking with the people exactly like they should. Mm. Um, I think the communist movement in the United States is too hooked to uh, the protest cage. The elitist, middle-class controlled, democratic-controlled spaces. And I think we need to get out of those spaces and back into the factories and workshops and streets and neighborhoods of the working class. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you can't be you just can't go around and be like, you're racist, you're homophobic, you're a transphobe, you don't know what you don't know what you're talking about. Shut up and go away, you're canceled. No, mm-hmm. that means there's you gotta go to the working class people where they're at. And find what they're concerned about and serve the people. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose then you, you sort of think that there is some work being done by the CPUSA and other parties. Yes, I mean, the PS, I, I, and the PSL and um, even, even uh, Workers World and a, and a bunch of others. Um, I think they're too tied to that um, liberal uh, demonstration kind of cage. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get out of people, but some, I think ESL is, is organizing with teachers and communists are working with the Amazon strikes. Um, people I heard, I think, I don't remember which organization it was, but they were actually trying to help people in the meatpacking industry, um, which I worked in for a bit, um, before I got into trucking. So I think there is a lot of work and I think it's getting better. And I think people are heading in the right direction. And I'm willing to work with anybody and everybody that's willing that has common goals and wants to build working class power. Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular favorite uh, project or project that comes to your mind straight away that you think, okay, this is a, a good example of of X party doing a great job? This this is building working class power. <laughs> um, let's see, let's see. Um, anybody doing uh, mutual aid, um, feeding the people talking with the people. Um, I'm currently involved with the comrade Caleb Maupin and a group mm-hmm. called Center for Political Innovation. And it's, ba- it's also a think tank. And we're trying, and it's also kind of like a publishing company. And we're just trying to, to bring about, I call the coming cultural revolution. Um, first is an economic revolution. Then um, the culture and the people respond to it. And then it brings about the next revolution, the economic revolution. And this is something focused on ideology and how do we bring about um, how do we bring about those talking points to talk with the working class. And that's what the CPI is doing. And that's what I'm a part of. And I'm actually going to keynote um, a present. We have monthly um, webinars with the Center for Political Innovation. And this month on the 27th, um, live from Caleb Maupin's YouTube channel, I'll be the keynote speaker um, mm. at, this, at this next coming conference. Mm. Um, I think the theme is going to be building, building communities of solidarity. Okay, building communities of solidarity. I don't know if that's in. I got to get on in a meeting. Um, sure. I think there's another meeting tomorrow to finalize the topic, but that's what I... Uh, 
that's what I um I I introduced or was pushing for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, well I'll I'll be tuning in for that. Is that is that going to be uh, just on the YouTube channel free, yeah. free to watch? Yeah, live okay. from uh, Caleb Moffin's YouTube. From Caleb Moffin's um, YouTube channel. Okay, it's, it's oh. going to be. I think it's going to be seven o'clock, uh, the twenty seventh of February. Okay. Okay. All right. That sounds sounds good to me. That sounds interesting. Um, and I, I also I got to give another shout out to a group. La Jaguar is a revolutionary Chicano nationalist um, media group out in Los Angeles, and I go way back with the brother Ernesto who was involved with Partido Raza Unida. And they are exactly what needs to be happening um, from an oppressed nation, but in, the, in, of, and for, and by the community. And AVAC, Tally Jaguar, was created in response to this um, bullshit liberal cancel culture. Some of the more people in with the Democrats were trying to criticize them for their revolutionary language from the 1960s and 70s Chicano uh, movement. And that's why they created that group. I think they're doing great work as well. And I often interview um, people from the Chicano community on my on Working Class Revolt. Mm-hmm. So the name of that group, Tele Jaguar. Tele Jaguar. Kind of like te- te- only uh, kind of like Tele Sur. Is Tele like Spanish television, and then Jaguar like the animal, okay. which you. has okay. uh, connotations with the Brown Berets. That's what they called the military uniform of the Brown Berets. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so we've got some examples there of of, of what kind of stuff you think that's uh, doing good work. Um, you, you've 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 used the phrase uh, "oppressed nations" uh, quite a lot in in, in our interview. Um, I mean, I, I'm I have uh, an understanding of what that means, but I feel like you might have a, a some particular uh meaning behind yes. that word. I think I think I have a unique perspective coming from the United States. The United States is a prison house of nations. And and in all re- in all material reality, um whether people recognize it or not, um the Afro-American people, the Chicano community have never truly been full citizens. They've been kept out and to this day they're super exploited people. And I think that and you see that in the politics you see that with the, 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 the Panthers theory of intercommunalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that with even in liberal, liberal circles, the Black Lives Matter struggle is an appeal to co-op the, the struggle for African-American liberation. I think there's positive elements uh, within that. It's really strong. But I think what, what gets pushed on the media and stuff like that. Mm. Um, isn't isn't about you know liberation and liberation means an end to the exploitation so we don't want you know representation isn't you know what's necessary we can have black presidents and female presidents and congress people all day but until we stop the exploitation and the killing of the oppressed communities um nothing's going to change we need to dismantle that and we need to understand it I think this the- this theory of understanding of my specific training, political training, is Harry Haywood, um, Black Bolshevik, and the understanding of Black nationalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, within that topic, um, amongst the communist community, amongst uh, I suppose um, amongst the oppressed nations, as you would call them, there is the 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 the, the topic of um, if they are oppressed nations. That at some point in the future, under some sort of revolutionary arrangement, that they would have 
uh, their own states within the U.S. Uh, within the USA in, in a perspective hypothetical new America. What are your thoughts about that? About a black nation within within? I the fully US? I fully support the right to self determination. Mm-hmm. Now, but as can, but I'm not one to. Fo- I'm not going to go around and tell people and push that on folks. That's folks' own decision, and that's way down the road. Right now, yeah. we're looking at how to unite um, workers in oppressed nations and and use the struggle to cl- to decolonialize, link mm-hmm. it up with the larger class struggle, mm-hmm. and to build and to build power mm-hmm. for the working class and oppressed nations. And for the oppressed nations and the working class to stand in solidarity with oppressed nations around the world, which is the the global South, um, Mm -hmm. Africa, Latin America, Asia. Those are also oppressed nations. Mm -hmm. Only they actually have their own flag and their own country. Right. Right. I see. (laughs) That's what you mean. Right, right, right. Um, We uh, we actually uh, jumped over something that I wanted to um, come back to. Uh, is we we obviously started talking about how um, you think that that actually the the assumption that the Democrat uh, is closer to the left is false is wrong, and that there's quite easily uh, people with a Republican mindset are quite you know can quite easily access um, communist ideas or socialist ideas or or anti-imperialist ideas. Um, and uh, on your um, show, you, you famously you, you enjoy singing, you enjoy music, and um, I was just wondering if you could show us that. You know, some people don't usually think of country music having an anti-imperialist or worker-conscious element to it. But could you show us something that that might prove them wrong in that sense? Well, you know, I can't just go right into the superstructure. I gotta, I gotta look, get a little bit of the economic base. Sure. And first up, um, culture of resistance and revolutionary culture has been um, hidden under the surface. Um, you don't hear in my state of North Carolina, there was a movement, there was the fusion parties and fusion parties. This was right after the civil war where were parties that were free slaves united with, um, poor whites and sharecroppers. um, in fusion in, in the populist, it was the populist movement and the revolutionary radical black Republicans um, of the time, united against then um, this, the, for, the former slave-owning um, Democrat. And they actually came to power in Wilmington, and there was a coup d'etat. And I, I get at that because there is a history of revolutionary culture, of, rev- of revolutionary understanding amongst various masses of the population that were not talked about, that's repressed. And I get this idea of revolutionary patriotism. Um, a lot of people say, well, any U.S. patriotism is national chauvinism. And I was, no, I love my people. Uh, my people are the working class, the international working class that resides in the territory um, occupied by the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's a unique, it's, we're, uni- we're unique peoples. I wouldn't say one because, you know, the oppressed nations, but we're unique peoples and communities with long histories. And white um, rural workers have revolutionary history um, behind them, Um, like NASCAR um, and the whiskey. Go back to the whiskey wars, um, the whiskey rebellions. The whiskey rebellions in the United States 
happened because the elites wanted to tax whiskey in a way that only so the big distilleries were able to make money, right? So then you had bootlegging where poor farmers would smuggle the whiskey over the hills, go against the cops and sell it to the people to try to earn a living. And NASCAR was, was folks that were running whiskey, running away from the cops that started racing cars. And that's, that's what became NASCAR today. Right. And <laughs> um, so there is histories of revolution and struggle. And country music is no ex- ex- exception to that. I mean, obviously you got Dolly Parton with songs like Nine to Five, which was basically taken out of Marx, basically. <laughs> now, maybe not from, maybe not directly. <laughs> maybe, I mean, nine to, nine to Five, you know, uh, you're just a stop, stop, a step on the boss man's ladder, stuff like that. You know, but you're in a boat with a lot of your friends. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? That's basically Marx, whether she knew it or not. Um, that's, <laughs> you know, I like it. But, I agree. but I agree. You, got, you got other stuff too. Chris Christofferson was mm-hmm. a country music writer, and he starred in the movie Convoy. Convoy, um, I believe it, 1979, might be wrong on that, is one of the best trucker movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And Convoy is about a label struggle, it's about a civil rights struggle. And Chris Christofferson um, starred in that. And Chris Christofferson wrote a, an album called Third World Warrior. And he was invited by the Sandinistas to sing a song praising the Sandinistas. Mm. What was this the name of the one, song? Do you, do you recall, sorry? Uh, the song was Sandinista. Sandinista, okay. Sandinista. And that's Chris, Christo- Chris Christofferson. Chris Christofferson, yes, okay. was invited by the, Sandini- by the Sandinistas to play that song for them in the 80s. And he wrote a song, Third World Warrior, where he's not coming off as a communist. He's coming off as a militant Republican, the early sense of the word Republican, like mm-hmm. Irish Republican. Um, <laughs> like the idea of, of the early revolutionary idea of of bourgeois democracy, but on a, a public level, like basically the American spirit that, that destroyed Nazism, that kind of um, republicanism, the, the Lincoln Brigade and the Spanish Civil War, these kind of ideas. He had kind of that kind of t- uh, slant to him. Hmm. And he, he, he in his lyrics in his song, Third World uh, Warrior, I believe that's the name of it. Um, he says, they might be communists and I don't care. They're on the right side of justice. That is a paraphrasing of those lyrics. Right, right. That's some great stuff. I, I didn't think we'd be discussing Dolly Pine today, but that, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. Uh, my, my favorite singer, which I've seen in concert several times, who's actually an anarchist. Um, he's a Navy veteran. Um, Sturgill Simpson. Sturgill Simpson. Uh, Sturgill Simpson. And I, I'll, I'll pray. I'll, if, you, if, if you let me, I'll sing a cappella, a Go verse ahead. of uh, let me, let me get, okay, here we go. Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran. North Korea, tell me where does it hand? Where the bodies keep piling up every day. How many more are they gonna send? Well, they send the sons and daughters off to fight for some oil to control the hell and win. Well, son, I hope you don't believe me. You gotta be a puppet to be a man. That was an anti-war veteran. And he has some very strong anti-war music. Mm. And he he actually wrote uh, he started being anti-war and dropped out you know dropped out of the navy and started doing anti-war stuff back in the Bush years and he's just and he was underground for a long time and he's mm. just now coming to national recognition 
and he was underground against the war. And you can't mention country and anti-war without mentioning the Dixie Chicks. The Dixie Chicks came out against the wars in Iraq. Um, they have a song called um, Traveling Soldier about a young girl falling in love with a, a soldier in Vietnam and about the, the pain and the suffering that happens to the American working class because we're forced to fight these wars of aggression. Um, and the Dixie Chicks came out about came out against that, and their whole career was shut down. And mm -hmm. I could go on forever. You got um, John Prine, who recently died, did folk and country, who got this song called "This Your Flag Detail Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore." Mm -hmm. um, was a good one by him. But it's there's a lot of repressed mm -hmm. history, even within uh, rural culture, and, and amongst white folks, it's revolutionary and anti-imperialist. And I think we should apply to that and build anti-imperialist power. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I, I've certainly learned a lot about country music. I'm going to be listening to some of these songs, chasing this up. Sergio Simpson, uh, Dixie Chicks, uh, Chris Christopherson. Nice one. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Um, I just, this is a, a question I didn't expect to actually ask. Obviously, you've mentioned that you're a truck driver. So obviously, uh, you, you have a, a, I don't know, an 18-wheeler perhaps. And you drive around and, and you, you ship goods. You, you, you're, you're in the logistics industry. And um, Elon Musk, obviously, I think it was maybe three years ago or two years ago, uh, you know, showed off his um, electric truck that he has. And um, this truck, particularly the one that he's developing, I'm not sure what state it's at now, but back then, at least three years ago, they showed how this thing could become, um, was automated, basically. Uh, could be driverless. And you could have this truck um, get onto a highway and some other truck of the same type could go behind it and join basically like a giant train uh, of electric trucks. And only the lead one might actually have a driver. The rest of them might just be set up in a particular way uh, and be automated in a particular way. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, as, as someone who's in the trucking industry, uh, automation in your industry, I mean, your job, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Well, uh, I got to get back into the base. <laughs> Before, you know, and basically there's been a three prong process that's happening um, in the United States. And that's um, and it's basically it's neoliberalism, uh, globalization, um, the technological revolution, um, which was the 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 transfer to analog um, to digital, the microprocessor revolution, the microprocessor revolution brought about the material reality of globalization. Before the microprocessor revolution, globalization wasn't physically possible. It wasn't like the capitalists got some idea, let's send all the jobs over there. It wasn't logistically possible without the microprocessor to manage that amount of data um, on that large scale to, to go about global shifting. So what's happened is, is a deindustrialization of the United States. Um, basically, we had a factory system and we're and then we were told to get ready for the service sector. And now it's like the gig economy. <laughs> it seems to be getting um, worse and worse. And, and, and it all comes down to we're in a decaying empire. Mm. And so we're losing public services. And, there, and it's been this very sad thing that's happened. It started with the black community where they introduced crack cocaine and then they used the drug war um, to criminalize people and keep people down. 
First, they de they took away the black folks' jobs. They introduced drugs, they criminalized them, and then you had the new Jim Crow and the expansion of the police state. The same thing is happening with rural white America to this day. We got the opioid crisis mm. just just recent after is the the last bit of industrial jobs are being took out of the rural areas. People are people are being um, introduced to opioids and it ha- and this is the same strategy they used against the Chinese and the opium wars. Only now they're using drugs and the police state against their own people. Um, so as far as modernization right now to this day, truck driving is one of the most common jobs in the United States because it's one of the last jobs that they couldn't autom- automate. And I think is they automate it and the last little bit of jobs dry up, um, that is not a stable situation. Mm. And when that happens, we need to have these pockets of resistance that can educate people is to become disillusioned with the system and steer them in the right direction, not towards barbarism, reactionaryism, fascism, or populist demigods like Trump, but mm. towards uh, revolutionary socialism. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that would be a, a good segue uh, towards revolutionary socialism is, is the direction you're saying there. Um, right now, uh, the film... Uh, Black, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah uh, just came out recently. Um, and obviously that's about Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers and they work in Chicago, which you've already mentioned. Uh, who do you turn to? Who do you listen to? And who do you sort of um, look to right now um, when you're mm, listening or trying to think about the next steps for building revolutionary socialism in the U.S.? Um, who, who's the who's the Messiah, quote unquote, right now? Who's the Fred Hampton of our time? Man, I don't know a lot of Messiah. I don't really like uh, to put pressure on the individual. I think Fred Hampton was that individual mm-hmm. for that time. I don't mm-hmm. know of any individual now that is that. But mm-hmm. like I said earlier, I think there's positive struggles, you know, within the oppressed nations. I mean, the Panthers led the Rainbow Coalition, so I think. A lot of the revolutionary leadership is going to come out of the oppressed nation in the in the United States. And I think the larger, broader working class has a big role to play in that, if not a part of that leadership. Mm. Um, that movie, I watched the movie, I did a review. If people want to go on my channel um, and look at that review, that's cool. Um, there was a little bit of a liberal, uh, unjust liberal criticism within that movie. But I think overall, it, it, it represented that positive history, which doesn't happen very often in yeah. our media. And movie, you think about movies in the United States are soft power imperialist propaganda. Absolutely. The, the military gives fucking convoys and military bases and and all these guns and procedures to Hollywood to use in their movies for recruitment campaigns and to con- and to, and to export overseas to show the United States as the good guys when they're the when the United States government and its military is the most disgusting terrorist organization that's ever existed in human history mm-hmm. absolutely i mean so if there isn't a messiah that you sort of uh, turn to uh, who who do you, who do you sort of think the, the the best voices of reason so which analysts which journalists which channels which like i said i like i like uh i like telly hagwire i also have a i have a 
um, a deep reverence for Black Agenda Report, um, brother uh, uh, Ajamu Baraka, um, former vice presidential candidate of the Green Party. Um, I think he is doing exactly um, what is necessary with his. Um, um, I think I think it's uh, is it Black Coalition for Peace. I'm not sure. Um, uh, but uh, Jamu Baraka and the anti the black led anti war organization he leads um, some of the leadership in the Green Party. I know I'm a communist, and they're you know um, that is a by definition a reformist party. Um, but I have a lot of respect for the vice presidential candidate um, Angela Walker um, and Howie Hawkins. I had some issues with them, but I supported them in the campaign. But basically, anybody that's getting out, talking with the people, I'm for a multi-strategic revolutionary push for workers' power. So anybody is educating the masses and building power within the masses is part of leading history forward. I don't have to agree on everything to support, have reference, support, or work with an organization or person. Great stuff. Well, it's been a, an absolute pleasure speaking to you, um, Dust. I, I've really enjoyed this, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, uh, on on the MTT podcast and speaking to us. And, and I'd love to have you on again to discuss something. Uh, but yes, thank you very much. All right, if I could just uh, put a plug in, you guys can find me on YouTube under Dust James. If you Google Dust James Anti-Imperialist America, you will find my YouTube and my Facebook, and it's also Dust James on Twitter as well. Perfect. Great. Stuff. And thank you for having me here today, Brother Richard of Marxist Think Tank. Um, great stuff. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening. <laughs>